Well, it is good to be with you today, Sanctuary. It's good to worship with you. Um, man, if I seemed uh, a little overzealous about the thought of childlessness, um, we are in the thick of it, let me tell you. We have a seven-year-old daughter, Eleanor, our two-year-old son, Rowan, and our six-month-old, Marigold, who has just, in the last week or so, decided that now is not the time to be resting, parents. And when I say now is not the time, I mean any time. And so we are, we're kind of walking zombies right now. We're a little bit asleep on our feet, but that's okay. There is something about this Jesus, this miracle-working, healing Jesus, that if I'm honest, I try to avoid. There's something that's just so unrelatable about this Jesus who goes about healing and raising people from the dead. I mean, you know, give me like, give me somebody like Paul, right? Like ugly Paul. Give me somebody like the rambunctious Peter or Mary who herself had seasons of toting around small children. Like these are stories, these are people that I can relate to. But this miracle-working Jesus, this Jesus who goes about touching people and raising them from the dead and whose clothes seem to be somehow charged with grace, I don't know what to do with that Jesus. If you've, uh, if you've ever had the privilege of holding a baby and tried to put a baby to sleep, you know that you hold them, you walk around, you rock that baby, and there comes this crucial moment where you actually have to look down to see, is this baby asleep? Now, this is not a moment to take lightly because if you look down, and like all of you moms in the room, I can see like, yeah, yeah. If you look down and that baby's eyes are open and you lock eyes with that baby for a second, you know it's like, this is game over. Like the thing that we set out to do is just not gonna happen right now. And so we try not to look, right? That's kind of how I've approached this version of Jesus, this miracle-working, healing, grace-filled, unpredictable version of Jesus. Because I'm a little bit afraid that if I actually look, that he might be looking back at me and that that might actually require something of me. But still, there is no other way of knowing there's no other way of telling if that baby is asleep, and there's no other way of knowing this Jesus without actually turning our eyes and risk messing this whole thing up altogether. This gospel text today is what we call, very officially, a Mark sandwich. It's this organization of a story that Mark is known for, where Mark sets out to tell a particular story about Jesus and in the middle of that story, there's something else that happens. There's some other detour that jumps in and interrupts the original story. So usually it's a moment of healing, some kind of miraculous moment, and then the moment comes and it goes, and we're right back into our first story. This is a very typical organization for, for Mark. 
And this story that we find in Mark 5 today is really a tale of two daughters. Jesus, remember, has crossed the sea. Crowds are starting to form. And this chief, this leader of the synagogue, Jairus, he finds Jesus and he tells him that his daughter is dying. He's pleading with him. The text says that he tells him repeatedly, my daughter is dying. Please come and lay hands on her so that she might live. So right out of the gate, we're introduced to this first daughter. And while they're on their way, while this first story is underway, this other woman, who the text tells us has been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years, she joins the crowd and she presses in and she touches, the text says, just the fringe, the edges of Jesus' garments. A couple of points here. We don't need to get lost in the weeds on all of this, but we should know that for the Jewish people, they maintained extravagant and restrictive purity regulations. That these regulations policed who was clean and who was unclean. And not only who was in and who was out, but also who could participate in this sacrificial temple system. So this woman, for 12 years, she has, in no uncertain terms, been deemed unclean, which means she is kept outside, outside of the center of society, but also outside of the temple. And so she is poor. She has spent everything that she has. And the text tells us that she has endured much from these unsuccessful gynecologists, that these are people who have worked to try to offer her a solution, but nothing has worked. It's interesting that Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, even though he is a physician, he tends to leave out this detail, that the doctors couldn't fix her. But to add to all of this physical suffering, and we know that she's suffering physically, this bleeding means that she would be unable to have children, that somehow her future is cut off from her. She's unable to have children. And then to add to the physical suffering, she's not only cut off from her future and from living a life free of pain, but she's also cut off from her community and from her God because she has been deemed unclean. And so it's in this dramatic moment where the crowd is moving. They know they're on their way to Jairus' house. Jesus is setting out to do this thing that he has said that he was going to do. And it's in this moment that this woman presses through. She interrupts the moment. She interrupts what's happening. And she causes this moment to come to a halt. She interrupts Jesus and she interrupts Jairus, who they've set off to lay hands on this girl to finally get Jairus the miracle that he's been waiting on. Except, if you notice, she doesn't really interrupt at all. Jesus is the one who says, hold on a minute. Something just happened here. And Jesus doesn't need to stop. 
Jesus could have just kept on moving, knowing that something back there happened for someone, but he stops. Even though he knows the urgency in Jairus' voice, even though he knows this is a time-sensitive moment, this girl is about to die, Jesus stops. And what if Jesus stops, Jesus interrupts this moment Because while this physical woman's healing is important, there was some kind of deeper wound in her that needed tending to. There was another part of this woman that needs a touch, that more than her physical body, Jesus in this moment starts to restore her back to her community and back to her God. He doesn't need to stop. And this is the risk that Jesus takes in even acknowledging what has just happened. For him to bring everything to a halt and say, hold on, who touched me? He's risking everything. Remember, she has been deemed unclean. And another surefire way of being made unclean is to be touched by someone who is unclean. But this is what we have to understand about Jesus that Jesus is not corrupted by our humanity. When Christ takes on flesh and bone, Jesus is not made unclean. Creation is redeemed. And we get this so backwards. We get so nervous that the world is going to corrupt Jesus. So we have to come and we have to protect Jesus. We have to defend Jesus. We have to start regulating who gets to come in and experience Jesus from the inside as if we're now the ones trying to cleanse the temple in some way. But Jesus already did that. Jesus has flung open the doors of the church, and not just so that people can get in, but that so his glory can flow out into the world. Jesus is not scandalized by your stuff. Jesus touches the unclean and makes them whole again. Jesus stops, he looks at this woman, and he says to her these words, daughter, Your faith has made you well. Jesus reminds her. He reestablishes this woman's identity as beloved, as a child of God. And it's on the heels of that moment, daughter, your faith has made you well, that they come with another announcement for Jairus. Your daughter is dead. Your faith has made you well. Your daughter is dead. And something that I couldn't shake this week is the reality that Jairus refuses to try and control the situation. He doesn't try to control this woman or to stop her from coming or to drag Jesus along. This woman that's just derailed this miracle that was actually intended for his daughter. Remember, Jairus' daughter was supposed to be the one who was healed, not this woman. And think about this. Imagine the hope and the joy and the expectation welling up inside of Jairus. I mean, what are the chances that Jesus, this one that he's heard rumors about, he has heard stories about, actually makes his way across the sea? 
And now he's actually within some kind of reasonable distance. And now he has set out in hopes of finding Jesus. And he's not texting his friends, like, have you seen him? He's not checking social media to find out where the gatherings are. He is just, it is an act of God that the news has made its way to Jairus and that Jairus has actually found Jesus. This miracle that he's been holding out for, this moment that he's been praying and grieving over, it's finally happening until it's not. There's a story of another leader of the synagogue that we find in Luke's gospel, chapter 13. But this leader, unlike Jairus, he sees Jesus heal a woman. And let's just look at the text, starting in verse 10 of Luke 13. As he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, a woman was there who had been disabled by a spirit for over 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called out to her, woman, you are free of your disability. And then he laid his hands on her and instantly she was restored and began to glorify God. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, responded by telling the crowd, there are six days when work should be done. Therefore, come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath. But the Lord answered him and said, hypocrites, doesn't each one of you untie his ox or donkey from the feeding trough on the Sabbath and lead it to water? Satan has bound this woman, a daughter of Abraham, for 18 years. Shouldn't she be untied from this bondage on the Sabbath day? And the whole crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things he was doing. Shouldn't she be untied from this bondage? We have the story of two synagogue leaders, one who is indignant in the face of Jesus because he has violated Sabbath law, and one who waits patiently, patiently, while Jesus heals and restores a woman who is not his daughter. See, the Spirit the Spirit is always doing something in us that our hearts have to catch up to. Here's what I mean. This past week, if you remember, was the sixth anniversary of the Emmanuel AME shooting that happened in Charleston, South Carolina. And I was reminded of this story of this old mother who had witnessed this man shoot and kill her son and they're in the courtroom. This man's behind a wall of glass, and the judge gives her permission to speak to him on her own behalf, but also on the behalf of her community. And this is what she said. We opened our arms to you. We enjoyed you. The Lord forgives you. Repent. We opened our arms to you. We enjoyed you. The Lord forgives you. Repent. This kind of work is only the work of God. But for you and for me, for most of us, we have never lived through that kind of suffering. I don't know anything about that 
deep well of pain because I've been raised among people who haven't suffered like that, and chances are you haven't either. And part of the reason that that woman and that congregation could respond in that way to say the Lord forgives you is because they have had hundreds of years of training in that kind of forgiveness. But for her to say we forgive you shouldn't be confused with us hearing everything is okay or I don't feel the pain of what you've done any longer. That's not what is being said. What is being said is that the Lord forgives you. And for her to declare forgiveness is to know that the Spirit of God is going out before her, doing something that her heart has yet to catch up to. This is true for her, and it was true for Jairus that to stand by and to watch someone else receive the healing and receive the miracle that was intended for his daughter is a practice of the fruit of the spirit that is patience. That even when it's a work of the spirit is doing ahead of us, our hearts still have to do the work of catching up with it. And what Jairus seems to understand and what he is still catching up to is that this woman's healing is somehow, in some way, all bound up in the healing of his own daughter. He doesn't understand it. He may not perceive it in the moment, but he doesn't panic. He doesn't rush to control her or to drag Jesus along. He just waits. Because while this woman is being healed, she is also being restored as a child of God, as a daughter, as one who belongs once more now to this community. And what Jairus is bearing witness to is that we are no more separable from one another than the son is separable from the father. That Jesus is not just healing her physical body, Jesus is making her whole. And so he waits. And it's in the middle of that waiting the middle of that patience, they get the news that his daughter has died. And now you can just imagine. And I hope that it's just in your imagination, but some of you have experienced this kind of devastation and disappointment, this feeling like we were so close. I think if we're honest, this is where most of our prayers land, that we were so close. We were almost there. Maybe if we could have just moved things along a little faster, a little quicker, if that woman wouldn't have done what she did, maybe we would have gotten there in time. But while Jairus embodied this spirit of trust and this spirit of patience, Jesus is patient all the more. The patient reach of Jesus extends even beyond death itself. Even when people from Jairus' own house come and tell him, don't bother Jesus anymore. Let him get on with it. Why trouble him any further? Jesus still shows up because death is not a boundary that Jesus respects. Remember, this is a story, a tale of two daughters. One is a 12-year-old child. The other has been childless for 12 years. 
One is alive, but kept outside, outside the temple, outside the boundaries of society. But the other is inside, even though she's dead. And then Jesus, who was also 12 years old once, he transgresses all of those boundaries. Jesus brings those who are outside in. And Jesus brings those who are in from death back to life. Jesus, in a moment, gives this child her future as an adult. And he gives this woman her future as a child. Daughter, your faith has made you well. So wherever you think the line has been drawn, Jesus transgresses all of the boundaries. Jesus goes further than what you think is possible, than the lines that you have drawn in the sand. Stand up with me so you think I'm done. There are lots of ways that we can position ourselves in this story today. Maybe today you are like that woman who has been suffering for 12 years. Interesting, Jerome, a fourth and fifth century priest, he takes this story of this woman and he notes that her touch on the hem of his garment was the cry of a believing heart. He says, in this, she is the figure of the assembly of God gathered from all nations. What is he saying? He's saying that this woman is the embodiment of the people of God, that we come and we join the cries of our heart in the same way that this woman presses in in faith. Every time we gather, we gather with the sufferings that we are aware of, we come with the deep wounds that sometimes we're not even aware of. And we press in. We trust that just by getting close to this person of Jesus, something new can be made possible for us. This is the picture we have in mind every time we pray the prayers of the people, that we're gathering the cries as the assembly of God. So maybe that's you today. And maybe you do need some kind of physical touch or physical healing. Don't look away from that Jesus, even though he feels unrelatable and strange and we don't know exactly what to do with him. We live in a world where we believe that miracles might actually be possible. Maybe that's you. Maybe your wound today runs deeper than just a physical need. Maybe you have found yourself disowned or cut off from those people who mean the most to you. Jesus is ready, and you are not an inconvenience. Maybe today you're like Jairus. You're somebody who is anxious for Jesus to come and to do that thing that he said he was going to do, waiting patiently trying your best to embody that thing that the Spirit is doing in you that you know your heart has yet to catch up with. Maybe like Jairus, you're witnessing the way that all of your healing is bound up in one another's healing. And you're ready to be part of that kind of work in the world. The work that seeks to see the healing of others knowing that it eventually means healing for yourself. Whatever the case may be, wherever you find yourself, 
we're given this invitation at the end of today's story. Jairus' daughter has been raised from the dead. And Jesus tells them, give her something to eat. In just a moment, Jesus invites us to do the same. For all of us to come and to be given something to eat. But we know that this something is not just nourishment for our bodies. We know that this something that we're invited to come and taste and see is somehow a meal that can heal us. A meal that can restore us. We come to this table as people who have already been raised to new life in Jesus Christ, that we are part of the new thing that God is doing in the world, and this is the invitation that changes everything for us. This is the story that shapes our lives.